We're asking you to grab your Bibles and turn with us to Colossians chapter 3. Did want to follow up on what uh, Aaron and Pepper said. Uh, we would love to see, uh, if you're a member of this church, 100% participation in our children's ministry and with our nursery. That doesn't mean necessarily either because, so if you're physically or by, um, let's say, disposition, unable to get down in the hands and feet and kind of be there with the kids, there's lots of other ways to serve in regards to cleaning, um, providing food and snacks. Uh, to support that ministry. So we would, at February 21, uh, please join, join in some way, shape, or form with that ministry. Uh, we would love to see many people involved. Um, that's, that's, that's the most volunteer-heavy ministry of our entire church. It takes a ton of labor and effort between our children's ministry and our nursery to, to run that. So, uh, and also, please thank those ladies. They put in uh, probably more volunteer time than just about anyone else in this church who's not an elder or on staff. Well, we don't volunteer our time, I guess, but um, we get paid. <laughs> I don't know how we work that out. Uh, um, so, but uh, if, if she, Aaron in particular, uh, for, for a number of years, with Pepper now as well, uh, we, we have tried to like get Aaron to take pay, and she, she just won't do it. So um, it's, um, please, please thank them whenever you see them for their heavy and hard work. All right, Colossians chapter 3 is where we're going this morning. We're going to pick up in verse 12. And we'll read through verse 17 together. Hear God's word. Should be on the screen so you also read along in your own Bibles. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Ascends the reading of God's words. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God stand forever. Well, we continue on in our series in, of Colossians and walking through. And as we are, uh, we're in this section in verses 12 through 17, where the emphasis is put something on. That we saw in 5 through 11, uh, the, the verses there about taking something off or putting to death various evil, wicked activities. And the thinking and the thought process is your old man, how you used to be in your very nature, was selfish and uh, was heading towards wrath. But there is a new man in your life. And so you're to put off those old behaviors and put on new behaviors. When you take off dirty clothes, it is best for everyone around you if you go ahead and put on some fresh clothes and some new clothes. And that's the same for your spiritual walk as well. That you're not simply taking off certain evil acts that you're saying we're not going to do certain things. But we're also saying we're moving towards certain behaviors that are lovely in God's sight. And we saw last week I shared that there's three different sections to this of what we're to put on. We're first to put on love, which we looked at last week. Which involves things like bearing with one another and forgiving one another and showing gentleness to one another. This week we look at, in verse 15, the putting on peace, the peace of Christ. And next week we'll look at putting on the word of God. But this morning we focus there at verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. The calling as Christians 
is to be a people who not only are we to be about love, but we are also to be about peace, to put on peace in our lives. And if you know anything about peacemaking and living life in this world where there's all kinds of brokenness in our lives and invade our, our, our worlds, our circumstances change and can be very difficult, peace is not easy to come by, but it is so, so sweet when God brings it about in us. Let me tell you a story about someone, about a pastoral account, about a pastor man named Pastor Mark and his wife, uh, Donna, who um, on a particular Sunday, they were sitting on the front row of the church waiting to get up and speak. And the previous weeks and months, they had been through much. The elders of the church and him had begun to have a lot of fighting and disagreements. See, Pastor Mark wanted to have the senior pastoral job when the senior pastor left to go take another church. And Mark wanted to take that role and felt like he was ready to. But in a congregational meeting, many people stood up and questioned his ability to lead the church. And, the ch- and the, Mark felt like many in the congregation had slandered him, had essentially slandered his name. And he didn't feel like the elders and the leaders of the church had defended him publicly. Not only that, but he felt like the elders had gone behind his back and had spoken negatively about him, which indeed actually happened to a number of people talking about his weaknesses and his inabilities to lead and even some of his own failures um, as a father and a husband. And so these things were going on in the background, and there had begun to develop between Mark and this session, as we call the group of elders, a root of bitterness. There was infighting going on, and there was no peace. And it got, the tension got so bad that the church eventually had to call in what they called the reconciliation team from another church, from outside the church, to come mediate the disagreement that was going on between this particular pastor and the elders of the church. Now, over the course of a couple of weekends, this reconciliation team met with the session with the elders of the church and with the pastors. And in that course, they talked about the principles of peacemaking, and they, talked to, they, they met with folks one-on-one, and they encouraged them that this is what forgiveness would look like, and this is what repentance would look like. And so on this particular Sunday, the session, the elders were going to get up, and they were going to read a, a letter of confession that they had written to the church. Now, Pastor Mark and his wife had read this letter, and they felt like it fell far short of what they needed to be apologizing for. They didn't then take ownership for near as much as they thought the elders should be taking ownership for, for the disagreements that were between them. And so on this particular Sunday, they sat there in the front row. They were ready. When he was going to respond, he was going to get up, and he was going to let the church know how it really was, about how he had really been treated by these leaders, by these men. But then when the elder read his statement, he read the statement, just canned statement, the letter to the church, confessing in general the sins of the elders, towards this pastor but then he finished when he finished his letter he looked at pastor mark and to his wife donna and he looked and said i have sinned against you and then proceeded to outline the specific ways he had sinned against them and then he said will you please with tears in his eyes forgive me and he walked off the stage and then the next elder came up and he did the same thing and outlined the ways in which he had sinned against their brother. And he says, will you please forgive me? Seven men, time after time, in front of the entire church, confessed their sins and pursued peace with this brother. Well, Mark and his wife, who had come into the church that morning ready to make the record straight, were blown away. And Mark and his wife got up on stage. They could barely speak because of the tears in their eyes. And they were choking back these tears. And they began, he began to share about how he came that morning. And he thought, I'm going to set the record right. I'm going to make my pleas known to everybody and how these men have offended me. But as I sat there, the hatred in my heart was revealed. And how over the last number of months, 
I have withheld, I have held bitterness against these men. I have withheld forgiveness to people in the church who have asked for forgiveness. And I have displayed an angry, hateful spirit that God calls murderous. And so the people, the person who needs to ask for forgiveness in this building, not so much are the elders, but is me in particular. And he said, I forgive you men for your sins, but I plead for your forgiveness of mine. And at that, the elders came forward and they embraced Mark and his wife. But it didn't end there. For the next 45 minutes, different members of the congregation walked up to a microphone and began to publicly profess and confess their sins. This was not planned. Began to confess and profess their sins. And finally, after this time, eventually they closed the service by having everyone turn to one another and say this, the Lord has forgiven all your sins. Praise be to God. Go in peace, brother and sister. It is a sweet thing when the church displays peacemaking. It is one of the greatest displays of our witness to the world when people who should hate each other because of their backgrounds or because of their interactions with one another have not been so sweet in the past are pursuing reconciliation and peacemaking with one another. One of the greatest things we can do as a church is not so much grow. That's lovely. We've seen plenty of that. But we must keep the peace and pursue peace with one another. That is the call this morning. To put on peace in your own lives, pursue it with your spouse and with your children, with your co-workers. But it's particularly this morning, as we'll see in just a second, with the people of God. So let's look at peacemaking, what it looks like, the context of peacemaking, the nature of peacemaking. And then finally, we'll look at some practices of peace this morning. The context for peace. There is a specific context that is being spoke about here in verse 15. It says, to which indeed you were called, this peace, in one body. Now, often when we talk about peace and we think of peace in our Christian life, we think of inner tranquility, and that is very important. And in fact, we're going to show you in just a second, I'm going to show you theologically how you must have that first and foremost, understand that there's peace between you and God and peace with your world before you can be a peacemaker to other people. But the particular call that Paul is giving us here is that we are to be people who make peace with those around us. Matthew 5, verse 9, Jesus says this, said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they are indeed the sons and daughters of God. If you want to be known as a son or daughter of God, you are like your Savior. You're like your God who makes peace. In the larger context of this verse in verse 15, of all that's going on in Colossians chapter 3, is what it's saying is all of these, these things that we're to put off and put on are very much relational in nature. If you think back to verses 5 through 11, the things that we're going to put off is anger and wrath and malice and slander. That's relational. Do not lie to one another, it says. And then the things as we looked at last week, the things that we're to put on, the love for one another, um, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, extending a gentleness towards one another as we pursue. These are one another passages. That what we're going to put on is relational love for one another. And then today, the peace, and the next week, we'll see how we're supposed to instruct with one another through the word of God and using the word of God. Everything about this context says that this is relational in nature, the peace that we're to pursue. Peacemaking amongst one another. Let's talk very briefly about what peacemaking is here within the context of peace. Peacemaking is this, in its most generic and general sense, peacemaking is inherently an evangelistic activity. Did you hear that? Peacemaking is an evangelistic activity. In order to understand that, you have to understand the greater story of the Bible. 
You see, the greatest problem that humans have and that each of us has before we come to know Jesus is that we are at war with God. It's not that there's been a minor tiff between us and God. It is not that we simply don't have sweet, loving feelings about God. It's that the Bible says that there is actual hostility between us and God, that we are born children of wrath, enemies of God, doing everything we can both to run away from him and to fight his influence in our lives. This is the big problem that we have. But this is what the gospel is, is that when we were in that state, when we were in a state of war between us and God, that God made enabled us to have peace terms with him through his son Jesus, who came down to earth, took the wrath that we deserve so that we can now freely have peace with him. That, that, that hostility that is between us is done away with, and we are now brought back into intimacy and peace and a loving relationship with our God and our Father. This is what the gospel is. And so we go out as peacemakers, generically as Christians, in this general sense, and tell the world, whenever you share the gospel, most profoundly, you are being a peacemaker in that moment. Because you are making peace between men and God. But it doesn't end there. The gospel truth, the good news that there is peace between you and God, and that there is peace between the other people sitting in the pew with you, between them and God, through Jesus Christ, that is to be applied in how we do our relationships. It's not simply, it's just me and God, but that must be extended out. That we treat one another as people who we were just, used to be in hostility with God, but, and we used to be in hostility with one another. But now through our, our intimacy and peace with Christ Jesus, we also must be apply this to have peace with one another. So Ephesians chapter 2 talks about this in verses 14 through 16. Paul says this, For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace and thus reconciling us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That we must understand peacemaking as a gospel endeavor is it flows out of, and we'll look at this a little bit more later on, but it flows out of our understanding of the gospel truth that we have been made right with God. And we are extending and displaying that truth when we become and are made right with other brothers and sisters. Also, in order to understand this context of peace, we must understand what it means to do peacemaking. By simply by that, we need to understand what the fullness of what the vision is here for peacemaking. That peacemaking is not simply the absence of conflict. If absence of conflict is what we are after, then isolation is what we should go after, right? You can get rid of a lot of fights by simply moving away from people. But in the church, we move towards people. There's something more than simply the absence of conflict going on here. What is, what is behind this word peace, and I've addressed this a number of other times, but is the Hebrew understanding and idea of shalom, which is not simply that there's not wars or strife, but that everything is the way it ought to be. This holds us to a higher vision and a higher call as to what peacemaking is. It is not simply that you're not actively engaging in fights and spats with people in the church. It's that whenever you feel that a relationship is not all that God has called your relationship with another brother or sister to be, that you pursue that relationship until it is right. Not that there's not problems, but that it's beautiful and loving and gracious and there's gentleness. Now, there are a couple of proclivities that we have that fall short in the way we do conflict that causes us to fall short of this biblical vision of what peacemaking looks like. 
And some of it maybe depend on your nature. Some of it maybe depend on your, your family environment and how you do conflict in your family. But there's two primarily polars, poles of how we engage in conflict in a negative way that falls short of the biblical paradigm. And that's to be conflict avoiders or conflict abusers. Conflict avoiders or conflict abusers. Probably for many of you, maybe probably for most of you, you're conflict avoiders. Because you grew up in the South and this is how we do it in the South, right? We don't talk about our problems in the South. There's, mommy and daddy are fighting, let's just not talk about it. That crazy aunt, we just don't talk about her anymore, all right? That, that has gone nuts. Some people think, though, this is what peacemaking is. It's simply don't, don't, don't create waves, don't ruffle feathers, let's just r- brush things under the rug. But that can't be what the peacemaking that Jesus is talking about here. Because it's certainly not the peacemaking that Jesus gives us an example of, right? When Jesus shows up, does he just kind of brush under the rug everyone's sins? Not exactly, I think he goes after the Pharisees and calls them a brood of vipers and children of the devil. That's purely inflammatory. That's creating conflict as a way of addressing the issues. He goes after the Samaritan woman and her sin. He says, I know that you've had five husbands. He pursues and actually creates the, draws the conflict out so that bring, in order to bring redemption. Now, we may think that simply brushing things under the rug, this is the more, if we're going to choose between abuse and avoidance, avoidance is much better. But I want you to see here that by avoiding things, you have murdered that relationship. You're killing that relationship. Because what you do by avoiding the issues and not addressing your problems is you are devaluing that relationship. You're saying, it is not worth it for me to go through the problem of conflict in this person in order to restore this relationship. I would rather just walk away. I would rather not do the the things that need to be done. I would rather not do the mediation that needs to be done. I'd rather not do the hard and difficult process of confessing sin and challenging them to confess. The easiest form of hate, this is not the only form. It's often said that this is the, the greatest form of hate is neglect. But it's, not, it's not the greatest necessarily, but it's the easiest. The easiest form of hate is neglect. It's abandonment. The other side, though, some of you are conflict avoiders. Many of you, this is me, are conflict abusers. I came from a household with three younger sisters who let you know when they had a problem. We grew up in an 1,100-square-foot house, and we were homeschooled, and we were together all day. There was conflict all the time. So I learned to give it back. There was no, oh, let's brush this under the rug in my household growing up. Conflict abusers fall short of godly biblical peacemaking because they end the conflict not with peace but with death, some form of death. Their hatred of the relationship is active. While the conflict avoider, their hatred of the relationship is displayed via passivity. This person, the abuser, does it through aggression. Some of you grew up with fathers that were like this. This person's perspective of how to end conflict is to yell and scream and to drive you away. Maybe this is a soft example. Paul Tripp gives us a story I think maybe it's soft enough that maybe you won't be repulsed by it, sort of an uber-abusive one. But he was on a, on a trip with his kids. They were, doing, they were driving across the country, which he said, if you ever want to be sanctified, right? This kid's, you know, four kids in a minivan driving across the country, right? Two things will go up, your blood pressure and your sanctification process. We'll both speed up on that kind of trip. But they're driving across the country, and one of his sons has polyps in his nose. And therefore, he, when he breathed, he was very wheezy, like... Like, all the time. Well, the sister that was sitting next to little Ethan with the polyps in his nose, after a couple hours of this, as you probably would, was weary of this. Of weary of the constant wheezing next to her. And so she says, Daddy, 
Ethan is bothering me. And Paul says he couldn't help it. And so he asked her, well, what do you want me to do about it? And her response was, make him stop breathing. <laughs> Isn't this how, this is how the abuser, that's a very sweet thing, but this is how the abuser treats conflict. Just make them go away. <laughs> I would rather you stop breathing. That's how we're going to bring peace. That's my vision of peace is for you just to go away or for you just to drop dead. That would be, frankly, the easiest way to peace in this moment. The peace in the body of Christ means there will be conflict. The absence of conflict does not mean you're part of a healthy church. It does not mean you're part of a healthy family. We will always be addressing ways in our relationships in which we are constantly pursuing the greater biblical vision of peacemaking, which is where everything in these relationships are the way they ought to be. So that's the context. The call is to be peacemakers. Are you engaging in that in your life? With your spouse, with your children, with people in this church? Where does that peace come from and what's it like? What is the source of that peace? How does it play out in our lives? What's important to see is that the nature of this peace is found there, connected right there, when it talks about how this is a, a, an issue of the church. Whose body is it that it's referring to in Colossians 3.15? It's Christ's body. Christ's body. There ought to be peace in Christ's body. And this points us to the nature of peace. The nature of peace, there's two aspects of it that we see in verse 15. First, the nature of peace is first and foremost of Christ. It is from Christ. It is given by Christ. The peace is not, it is not, it is not developed first and foremost by us. It is given first by Christ Jesus. It does not happen by us being able to control our environment and control our circumstances so much. It's pleading with, the, with Jesus to bring this peace about. And the peace of Christ, it's of Christ, also means this. Is, it means that this peace is achieved by and through Christ and Christ alone. This is a really important principle, and this is where we get this internal spiritual sense of peace that needs to be there before we move out and do be our, our peacemakers with, one, with other people. It's this concept and this principle, which is this, that the peace of Christ, the sense of internal peace that we have with Christ Jesus, flowed out of our understanding that we have, been, we have peace with God. We talked about this before, Ephesians 2 and 11 through 18. I'm going to read it again. You can hear the full, the, encompass the whole passage there to understand what Paul is saying about how we have been made right with God. It says this, beginning in verse 11, Therefore remember that one time you Gentiles in the flesh, you were called the uncircumcision by those who were the, called the circumcision. That is, the Jews called the Gentiles the uncircumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember, verse 12, that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers of the covenant of promise, having no hope, None, no hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. This is what Jesus came to do. The peace of Christ is foundationally, theologically, and doctrinally found in the fact that through his blood being poured out on the cross, he made peace between us and God. It's not, first and foremost, about your anxiety. 
He came to address the hot fact that you were at war with God. But that truth, that he has addressed the fact that you were at war with God, then when you understand that, it will begin to do what? That paradigm will begin to rule your life. That's the second part of the nature of the peace of Christ. It's of Christ. It's achieved by Christ. But then it says this. It says that Christ, that peace that is from Christ, that is achieved by Christ, it rules in our hearts. In other words, what it's saying there is that this, this reality, this truth, that this hostility between us and God has been put to an end should control us. Literally, that word rules in the Greek is referring to is the same word that's used for umpire or judge in the, in the ancient Roman games. Now, we think of an umpire, simply they're there, and that's nice, and they're calling balls and strikes, and they're blowing the whistle when there's a foul. But an umpire back then was really important because their games usually involved life and death. So an umpire was there judging the games and making sure that things were going on correctly. And it's saying that this theological concept that I used to be at war with God but no longer should be the paradigm, should be the umpire that rules all of my relationships with other people. And it says, where does it rule? It rules at the heart. This is the seat of all emotions, of all desires, of all interactions. It rules there. And if we don't, get, if we don't have the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts first and foremost, we can never engage in peace with other people. Here's what it looks like. Here's what it looks like for the peace of Christ to rule in your hearts. I'll give you a couple of illustrations of this and how this plays out. This is just you. This is personal piety before we deal with the peacemaking. In Ephesians 2, it said that the means by which or the hostility between us and God was, was that bridge was gapped and we were brought in intimacy with God was that Christ abolished the law. Some of you have no internal peace because your life, you're running around trying to fulfill the law still on your own terms by your own strength and your own abilities. The internal law for some of you, you have no peace because the law is crushing you. It is like a rabid dog that is nipping at your heels while you're running around the world super busy, acting as if you were Martha. Remember Martha? She got fussy at her sister because she wouldn't help her with the dishes when Mary was simply sitting at Jesus' feet. Then there's, so there's the, there's the law that we are trying to make ourselves right with God. That peace has been through Christ Jesus, not through your own doing. You can't bridge that gap of hostility on your own doing. But then there's also, it's not simply just the law of the Old Testament, but there's also all these other gods that invade our lives that have their own little laws. Let's say your God, your God is recognition at work. And this is going to wreak havoc in your life because your whole life will fall through that God. You see, if, you're, if recognition at work is what you're after, first and foremost, is you will work way too many hours. You'll get stressed out. There will be no peace internally. When you work that many hours... Your family life begins to fall into shambles. Your marriage is no longer, there's no kind of intimacy between you and your wife. Your children barely know you, and now they're walking away from the Lord. You're literally your house. You're not taking care of your house, and now you're not being a good steward of the resources that God has given you. You see how it's like a black hole when you follow one of these idols. You can't have any wisdom. You can't hold any balance in your life, and actually what it causes is there's no peace in those other relationships. And then what happens with you and your coworkers if one of your coworkers gets promoted over you? Or if, you don't, or if they take the recognition that you felt like you deserved, what happens? You go ballistic, if not externally, internally, and you implode. There's no peace there for that person. What about financially? What, is, what if stuff is your God? You know, Dave Ramsey's um, great uh, training on how to uh, budget and, and run your money is called what? Financial Peace University. 
And he has brought a lot of people through the wisdom of this teaching to a much better sense of peace. But biblically speaking, you will never be at peace until you have dealt with the hard issues that have caused you to go into debt and to ruin yourself financially. See, what often is at the heart of our financial ruin is the fact that we had to have everything that we wanted right now. Remember what peace in the Hebrew sense is? The way it ought to be. And some of you think that the way your life ought to be that I get the house I want with the toys in it, filling the house that I want, and the car sitting outside of that house that I want. That's the way life ought to be in my vision of things. And only by understanding that your peace and your fullest satisfaction is found in Christ Jesus, the beauty of God being what draws you to himself, will you be able to turn away from all these other things and say, I don't need that right now. Maybe I never need it. Is the basis of actually coming to true financial peace. If Christ's peace rules in your hearts, it's no longer the demands of the law or the demands of some God, but it's God who gives you peace. Now we've got to transition here. Because that's the peace internally. But the degree that you understand that and you can extend that to other people, it moves out. When the peace of Christ holds sway in your heart, you judge other people. You judge your relationships by what Christ has done for you. It communicates to you what is fair and foul in your relationship with another brother or sister in Christ. When someone comes to you, and let's say it's a brother in Christ in the church, and you volunteered and you served like crazy, but only, only the person, one other person in that ministry got the recognition, and you didn't get it. Are you angry? If you believe that your, peace, that your, that your means of peace is through Christ Jesus alone, and it's not through being recognized in the church then you can be okay with that person. When that brother or sister in the, in, in the church who uses a flippant word against you, a kind of loose-tongued, and they say something that offends you, you can forgive them, you can overlook, you can bear with them in that moment because how they view, view you and how they feel about you is not your peace. Christ is your peace. And you can begin to extend graciousness to them because you know the graciousness that God has extended to you. You think about this, how God has pursued you, how he made peace this is how you make peace. When, Christ, when you were his enemy, he came after you. When you were running from him, he pursued you. He confronted you, yes. But then he sacrificed himself for you. He forgave you and he restored you to himself. That's the paradigm, the peace of Christ right there, that is to rule our relationships. That's the call. Well, how do we practice this? I'm going to spend our last little bit together this morning talking about some practical ways to pursue this and to grow up as peacemakers. There's many more things I'm sure you can think of, but I have three words I want to give you to kind of give you a sense of these practices. First is this, is thinking. Second is complaining. And then third is thinking. Thinking, complaining, and thanking. First, thinking. Colossians 3, chapter 1, that, that sets the tone for this entire chapter. It says this, Since then, since then, set your mind on these things. And it goes on to say that because your old man has been put to death and you've been raised to new life and you're hidden with Christ Jesus, that your peace is with him. Since then, do this and live this way. Well, here's what this is saying, that you are to set your mind. That's a thinking activity. Way too often, Christians are accused for being dumb, and we should, that should never be the case. We should be a thinking religion. We should not be after stupid peace. Stupid peace is worthless. So often, this is how we think, stupid peace is those things we did earlier. It's conflict avoiding or conflict abusing. It's just running away, getting rid of the conflict as soon as we possibly can. That's stupid peace. 
And I lived in a place in Sarajevo, Bosnia for a year where for a number of decades, it was known, it was, a, it was a socialistic country. It was known for its pluralistic society. It was like the bastion of pluralism in the world. It was a place where East met West and they were able to coexist, where Serbian Orthodox and Croatian Catholic and Bosnian Muslims all resided in one city and supposedly got along with one another. Now, the problem was they had hundreds and hundreds of years of history where they hadn't really gotten along. In fact, they'd slaughtered each other. But for decades and decades under pluralism, this thinking that if we just ignore the problems, if we just don't think about our past, then we'll be okay. If we don't engage in any kind of issues or any kind of heated discussions, we'll be all right. We'll be able to live in peace with one another. And what happened? It blew up right in their face, right into a genocidal war. That's stupid peace. They're doing it again. They're trying to ignore the problems without Christ Jesus and the peace that he's, he brings. Now, the only way we're going to have peace as brothers and sisters in Christ, peace in your marriage, is to apply the truths of the gospel, to think about them often, to think about the peace that Christ has won for you with God the Father. Think about this. Set your mind on this. What it costs to make peace between you and God. That Jesus go to the cross saying, well, this is going to hurt a little bit. But everything's okay. That's not what he did. He went to the cross, and what does he say about his relationship with God the Father? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The means by which you have peace with God the Father, that you get to meditate on that, is because Christ Jesus lost peace with God the Father. The Father turned his face away. Bill Lane, who's a wonderful commentator on the book of Mark, says this about the cry of dereliction, that scream about why, why God, oh God, have you forsaken me? He, paraphrasing, I say this. He said, crucified animal, criminals ordinarily suffered complete exhaustion and for long periods, uh, ordinarily suffered complete exhaustion and for long periods were unconscious before they died. But the stark realism of Mark's account describes a sudden, violent, warlike death. The cry of dereliction expresses unfathomable pain because here Jesus lost his peace. So you can have peace. This is the truth of the cross. He lost peace with God the Father. The war that was between you and God, that war came crashing down on him. So that you might have peace with God the Father. You meditate on that first and foremost. You look to the glory of God and the gospel. That will undercut all your offenses. And set you in a place, theologically you move out from that. And you will engage with all those who have been nasty to you. No matter what they've done to you. Second, though, you complain. You complain. Now, that seems odd, doesn't it? You're not supposed to be whiners and complainers. Well, I'm not talking about being a whiner. I'm talking about being a complainer. There's a good way to go about this. And actually get this from where we were last week. I skipped over this. It says this in verse 13, that we are to bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Talked about bearing with each other and forgiving each other, but if there is a relational rift, if, there's, if you understand that there's a racial rift, rift between you and another person, and you find that I just can't overlook this, the, our, our relationship will not be peace, all that it ought to be, until this is addressed, then you must go to that brother and you must complain to them. That's the path. That's actually the word used in verse 15 or verse 13. You complain to them, you confront them with your sins. Now, this doesn't mean you go to somebody else unless you're taking them with you, like the Matthew 18 paradigm. You're not complaining out, you're playing direct, complaining to God, and you're complaining directly to this person. What I mean by this is that you go and you confront and you say, That hurt me. That hurt me. 
This is not brushing the issue under the rug. But you're going and taking your complaint to that person. Now, here's the problem with this. It's so often, so often we have grown up in households where conflict was never done correctly. Either your parents, they, con- they, they did conflict by abuse or by avoidance. And so perhaps you've never learned how to do peacemaking. Listen, I would recommend you highly get this book, a book called The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. Jones is going to put it up on the website on the Facebook page for you this week so you can go to the direct link on Amazon. It is the magnum opus of what it is to do peacemaking. It's written by a guy who was a former, he was a lawyer, and then he began doing mediation within churches in which there was so much infighting in churches, he was able to develop a whole business and ministry around this idea. But after years and years of doing this, he wrote the book Peacemaker to walk through the biblical paradigm of how to do peace and reconciliation. Go read that book. It's of great value to you. I'm not going to quote from that right now. Actually, to give you a little bit of wisdom, just something vocabulary, some vocabulary to work through in your relationships. Practice this with your spouse. I'm going to take a, so a wisdom principle from a book called The Fifth Discipline, which is a book on how to do business conflicts well. And in this book, it talks about this paradigm that we all always, in all of our relationships, every single singular relationship we have, we have two columns, two things going on in our minds. We have first, the first column, the left column, are all the things that we're thinking but we're not saying. And the right column are the things that we're actually saying. So let me give you some illustrations of this. Person one walks up and says, how are you doing? And you think, in your left-hand column is you're thinking, I called this person three times last week and texted them twice and they never called me back. Right column, what you say, I'm good, how are you? (laughs) Ignore the problem. Another illustration, right hand, person comes up and says, it's good to see you. Person responds, left-hand column, and what they're thinking is, this person never says hi to me. I think they think I'm fat. (laughs) They don't like my personality. They don't say hi to me normally. I think they might have something against me. Does my breath stink? (laughs) Right-hand column, I'm fine. This is the way we go about our relationships. It's not intimate Christian relationships. Here's the problem, is in one of your relationships, when that left-hand column is full, you have a relational rift. And the problem with so many of us is you are having a relationship with somebody in your mind. And eventually it's going to spill over into reality. That left-hand column is full. You've got to empty it. If you come to a point where you can't empty it simply by overlooking the offense, then you must address the issue. Go to those people and speak to them. And so let me give you some of the vocabulary. If we could actually learn, maybe in your marriage, just try this out. Staff teams, work teams. Hey, can we, just, hey, can we clear the left column? Can we clear out the left column today? I just, you know, the last week, we had these interactions. Don't you have this as a husband and wife all the time? Hey, can we clear out the left column as opposed to, you know what? You know what you did today? You go, this may have been my perception. I felt like you ignored me when you walked past me at church yesterday. I felt like you didn't return my calls last week. Was something going on? And simply engaging with the issue that way. Listen, we don't have a choice. God has given us the great vision of biblical peacemaking, of making things as they ought to be in our relationships it's, we're not doing the shallow thing that we can do with everybody else, supposedly. We're called the intimacy in our relationships with one another. Would you vacate the left column and confront and love one another well enough to value your relationships? Lastly, thanking. Last principle. There's this interesting little tag, isn't there, at the end of verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. This is what you're called in one body. Oh, yeah, and be thankful. And what makes it even more confusing is not simply here, the Greek word here that's communicating be thankful is not simply that you kind of give thanks in your heart and you write it in your journal. It's actually that you vocalize and you verbalize thanks. And that this is, but this is actually the means 
of peace. Now, let me first apply it to our relationship with God. When you, that there is, that God has called us. Did you know this? This is all of the scriptures. Over 50 times in the Psalms alone, we are called and commanded to give thanks to God. And the reason for that is that we have a good father who understands that the means of our peace is coming to understand, to see things not in, in our little circumstances for today, but to see things in light of his power and his sovereignty and his goodness. And when you thank him, let's say you're financially struggling, that you, you're going, you go before the Lord and you say, Lord, my peace in this, my financial world is getting disrupted right now, but I'm going to sit here, I'm going to thank you that you have provided for me for the last 30 years of my life, that you own a cattle on a thousand hills, that you have won for me all the inheritance of heaven, and you begin to thank God. What happens to that disruption in your soul over your financial issue? It's less disruptive. You can worship God because of it. The combination of thankfulness and peace is a logical one. Where we can give thanks to God, it will therefore, it will inevitably lead to some sense, some relief of our anxiety and a greater sense of peace in who God is and what he has done for us. Now, I think that this practice of thanksgiving can be applied to our relationships. Could I call you to this discipline? That in the moment that when you, are, you know you've been, you're offended, that someone has said something that has offended you, that you would stop there and give thanks to God for that person. That you would start by giving thanks to God, then go to your journal, and then yes, even sit down, write them a note, go to their face, and begin to thank them. A gentle answer turns away wrath. This is a great way to start to be gentle. Even as you go and confront, I am so thankful for what you've done here and here in my life. I'm so thankful for who you are. And maybe, if you, maybe that would also help us if you were able to do that, that practice. It may actually enable you to overlook an offense, which we talked about last week. That you become so thankful that you realize, this is such a small offense, I can, I can brush past this. This isn't Norman Vincent Van Peel, just kind of think positive. This isn't brushing things under the rug. What this is, is having a gospel vision, a gospel imagination for how these people really are in God's eyes. 1 Corinthians 13, we looked at this last week, says this, Love believes the best and hopes the best. And Philippians 4, talking about how we, how we are brought to peace is by thinking noble thoughts. What is right and what is good. Could we think good thoughts about somebody before the offensive ones? One last long passage today as we come to a close. Romans 12, verses 20, 14 through 21. It's beautiful in giving us a paradigm for this. This exact principle. To bless instead of curse. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you and bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own eyes. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, this is referring to enemies. And if that's how you're supposed to treat enemies, how should you treat your spouse? Could you engage in this practice? One act of thanksgiving in the relational shadowlands, in a, rela- in a season of relational difficulty and stress, is worth a thousand thank yous when things are great between you and another person. Let me, let me root this finally one last thing into the cross and the gospel, and we'll close. 
The last night before Jesus was put, before he was taken to the cross and crucified for our sins, he sat at a table with men who he knew were about to reject him and deny him, and one was going to betray him. And he took bread, and it says, he broke it, and he gave thanks. <laughs> it's called the Greek word eucharisteo. It's where we get the word eucharist, that the Lord's Supper is the table where we come and give thanks to God for what he has done, but also where we give thanks to one another. Jesus gave thanks for those who had betrayed him, and then he displayed the greatest practice of peacemaking. He wouldn't sacrifice himself on their behalf. To the degree that you understand that and apply that, you'll make peace with one another. Let's pray. Gracious God, I pray that you give us a vision of what peacemaking might look like in this, in this place. Lord, I pray that we'd get really, really doggone practical right now. Lord, by your spirit, I pray that you'd bring to mind those in this room, those in our lives, for whom we know that relationship is not the way it ought to be. It may be a cold war. It may be a very hot war. But we know the relationship is not right. God, give us, give us a love and affection for you that displays to the world that your church makes peace with one another and is united around Christ Jesus. Give us a love and value for the people around us that we're willing to be uncomfortable for a little bit, to engage in peacemaking with another brother or sister. I pray that we'd be receptive when people confront us, that we'd be forgiving and that we would bear with one another. And by all this, Lord, as your people pursue this together, May God get the glory. It's in his name we pray. Amen.